In the summer of 1967, America exploded. During what became known as the long hot summer of 1967, 159 race riots erupted in major cities all across the country, including Atlanta, Boston, Minneapolis, and Newark, New Jersey. Institutionalized racism, discriminatory urban policies, police brutality, and racial tensions sparked a wave of civil unrest in the United States, more destructive than any conflict since the 1863 New York draft riots during the Civil War. This episode of Collective Memory, we're going to focus on one incident in the long hot summer, the Detroit race riot. The riot, or uprising as many call it, began with a police raid of an illicit bar on the city's near west side and ended with the U.S. Army and National Guard patrolling the streets, 43 people dead, 7,200 arrests, and more than 2,000 destroyed buildings. How did it get so bad? How did America react? And most importantly, what did we do afterward? Right now in America, federal police have been deployed in Portland and other major cities to respond to, and in many cases crush, protests. This is not a new phenomenon. The military and militarized police have been used time and again to respond to civil unrest. Our mission here is to determine why that's such a common course of action, and how previous incidents can help us explain how we got here. This is Collective Memory, a podcast about history, collective consciousness, and the forces that drive current events. I'm your host, Nick Gatlin. This episode is part one of a three-part series on protest, civil unrest, and police response in the United States. Today, we're looking at the legacy of the Detroit race riot and what it can tell us about the world we live in today. I think we've got to see that a riot is the language of the unheard. And what is it that America has failed to hear? It has failed to hear that the economic plight of the Negro poor has worsened over the last few years. How many summers like this one do you imagine that we can expect? Well, I would say this, we don't have long. The mood of the Negro community now is one of urgency, one of saying that we aren't going to wait, that we've got to have our freedom. We've waited too long. Let's go back a little bit. For most of the 20th century, Detroit was a manufacturing giant. Lucrative opportunities in the city attracted both black and white workers, creating a diverse urban environment that brought with it racial unrest. Black workers faced racism from their white co-workers. For example, in June 1943, white factory workers halted production to protest working with their black co-workers. Multiracial workplaces were tense for most of the 20th century, with white workers resenting other black workers and often refusing to work with them altogether. Black Detroiters were treated like second-class citizens. White neighborhoods fought hard to keep them out, and factories often offered employment but not housing, forcing black workers to find shelter wherever they could. So many black workers had moved north to seek employment in factories that Detroit was unable to accommodate all of them. The few black housing developments were squeezed into 60 city blocks on the east side of the city, and Detroit quickly ran out of space for the new black workers. That meant that most black Detroiters lived in horrible conditions in small, subdivided apartments. In 1943, due to the lack of space in historically black neighborhoods, the city attempted to build a black housing development, the Sojourner Truth Housing Project, in a white neighborhood. A mob of over a thousand white Detroiters, many of them armed, lit a cross and picketed their new black neighbors. 
On June 20th of that year, the escalating racial tensions in the city sparked violence as black and white Detroiters began to fight in the streets, leading to days of unrest. The riots were eventually quelled by 6,000 army troops riding in tanks and armed with automatic weapons. In the fray, 17 African Americans were killed by police. No white individuals were killed by police. Things in Detroit didn't get much better after the 1943 riots. In the 50s, homeowners associations fought against the integration of schools and neighborhoods. In the decade after World War II, the east side of the city lost 70,000 jobs due to deindustrialization. And when things got bad for Detroit, they got worse for black Detroit. In the 50s, many black neighborhoods, including Black Bottom and Paradise Valley, were demolished, making way for new freeways and housing. With the new developments also came the specter of integration, which terrified Detroit's white residents. Many whites left the city for the suburbs in that decade. From 1950 to 1960, Detroit's population declined by almost 20%. Racial relations in 1960s Detroit were not much better than in 1943, and black residents' material conditions certainly had not improved much. Additionally, the mostly white Detroit Police Department had become known for aggressive tactics, adversarial arrest practices, and over-policing of black communities. Detroit PD was not a welcome presence in black neighborhoods, and an increasingly antagonistic relationship between the department and black Detroiters was a powder keg set to explode. Six days in July. The film record of how WWJ News covered the events of this critical week in Detroit history, with commentary by the reporters and cameramen who were there. In a hundred places, Detroit is afire. The destroyers striking from as far as three miles away from this west side ghetto, where it all began early this morning, with a police raid on an after-hours drinking parlor. On July 23, 1967, at 3.15 a.m., the Detroit Police Department executed a raid on an unlicensed bar known as a Blind Pig. Inside the bar, the late-night crowd was taking part in the city's nightlife at the popular 12th Street epicenter of black retail in Detroit. They were having a party to celebrate two black servicemen's return from Vietnam. When police arrested the partygoers and took them to the precinct, a crowd gathered on the street around them amid reports that police were using excessive force. Someone threw a brick or an empty bottle, reports differ, at the rear window of a police car, shattering it. Then things blew up. News of the incident spread, and quickly a wave of arson, burglaries, and break-ins took place across the city. There were only about 200 police officers on duty at the time, remember it was 3 in the morning, and law enforcement eventually placed a quarantine on the neighborhood. But by then, it was too late. Later that afternoon, as the violence began to ramp up, Congressman John Conyers climbed on top of a car in the middle of 12th Street to plead with the rioters. He was pelted with bottles and bricks. It began in the district of Congressman John Conyers, who talked to WJKB's Sylvia Wayne. What efforts have you made at settling the disturbances? Well, I don't know if there's any one human being in the world that can settle these disturbances. This is a form of war by the have-nots to try to break into what they think they ought to be sharing and enjoying in our society. The first two days of rioting were marked by fires and looting citywide. The theft of firearms and other weaponry turned Detroit into a, quote, urban war zone, with snipers perched on roofs. The mayor, Jerome Cavanaugh, instituted a 9 p.m. to 5 a.m. curfew and instructed that looters not be shot, while the Michigan State Police and National Guard arrived as backup. On July 25th, federal troops from the 82nd Airborne Division arrived in the city. 
When the feds showed up, the looting and arson mostly stopped. The sniper fire continued, however, and they only stopped two days later on the 27th. In the course of the riots, 33 black people were killed, as were 10 white people. Whole blocks are now burning at dusk. The National Guard has moved in. The state police are cordoning off dozens of blocks of this west side. At this moment, there are at least 10 areas in town where looters have broken in and where firebombs have set fires. It looks like a B-52 raid in Detroit. John Hart, CBS News, Detroit. The ripple effects of the riots impacted Detroit for years. In 1967, 40,000 white people left the city. The next year, that number doubled. And riots hadn't just happened in Detroit, though the unrest there was by far the most destructive. They spread all throughout the country, taking place in many major cities. White backlash in the wake of the riots was fierce. One judge in Detroit said, quote, You're nothing but a lousy, thieving looter. It's too bad they didn't shoot you. Later that year, Miami Police Chief Walter Headley said during hearings about crime in Florida, quote, When the looting starts, the shooting starts. President Trump also used that phrase in May in response to the Minneapolis protests after the death of George Floyd. The question at the top of everyone's minds after the riot was, why? How had the situation become so terrible? At the highest levels of government, there were discussions to find the root cause of the unrest and what to do about it. President Lyndon Johnson, at a briefing where he established a commission to investigate the causes of the riots, asked three questions. What happened? Why did it happen? What can be done to prevent it from happening again? We uh, met right away uh, after the president uh, appointed us, and we set up a series of 20 days of formal hearings where we heard witnesses uh, all the way from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. to the head of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover. And then we broke up into teams and visited riot cities ourselves. And we said that they're, uh, that the terrible conditions gave rise uh, to these uh, protests and riots, that any spark uh, could set off the violence. The underlying causes were racism uh, and uh, poverty. This broadcast is an interim look at what happened to the riot report. A final verdict on its effect will take a long time, if we are given the time. The Riot Commission outlined an action program to transform life in our urban ghettos. Six million new homes in five years, two million new jobs, a guarantee of minimum income, far greater aid to schools than proposed thus far. A national commitment backed by the president, the Congress, the people with money. After the uprisings of 1967, President Johnson created the National Advisory Commission on Civil Disorders, popularly known as the Kerner Commission. It was chaired by Illinois Governor Otto Kerner, and its main finding was this, quote, Our nation is moving toward two societies, one black, one white, separate and unequal. It found that the civil unrest across the country was caused by a variety of factors, including discriminatory policing, a biased justice system, high unemployment rates, substandard housing, and other policies that disproportionately affected black Americans. The commission believed that segregation, poverty, and underfunded schools were an effect of institutional racism in public policy and private communities. They argued that large-scale, targeted government programs to eliminate those practices and invest in housing, education, employment, and social insurance would go a long way to alleviating the problem, 
before achieving the ultimate goal, full integration. They also found that when unrest did flare up in black communities, the response by law enforcement often inflamed tensions further. Poorly trained police officers, National Guardsmen, and sometimes military troops did little but escalate violence. The ultimate finding of the commission was that poverty and unrest in black communities was a problem white America needed to fix. Quote, white society, they wrote, is deeply implicated in the ghetto. White institutions created it, white institutions maintain it, and white society condones it. Despite the passing of the 1964 Civil Rights Act and 1965 Voting Rights Act, the day-to-day lives of black Americans did not change much in the 1960s. Law enforcement still over-policed black communities, poverty and unemployment were still rampant in many cities. President Johnson did not adopt the recommendations of the report. He had appointed commissioners who he believed were moderate, and he thought the commission's recommendations would give support to his great society programs and place blame at the feet of communist outside agitators. Instead, the commission argued that white racism was at the heart of the riots. At the time, polls found that 53% of white Americans did not believe racism caused the riots. 58% of black Americans agreed with the commission's findings. One could argue that backlash to the report, as well as to the riots and unrest across the country, paved the way for Richard Nixon's 1968 Law and Order campaign. But more broadly, one could argue that this historical moment marked a turning point in Americans' views toward law enforcement. A majority of white Americans rejected the idea that institutional racism was a problem that needed to be addressed. Instead, they embraced troops on city streets, they embraced violent crackdowns on uprisings, they rejected the massive government investment in marginalized communities the report called for. They voted for Richard Nixon, and in turn, they voted for law and order. The Kerner Commission's report remains relevant to this day, In fact, it was relevant only a year later, when riots broke out in 1968 after Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination. Black Lives Matter activists today echo many of the same concerns brought up in the report. Police violence, economic inequality, systemic racism, these are all familiar concerns. Law and order have broken down in Detroit, Michigan. Pillage, looting, murder, and arson have nothing to do with civil rights. Good evening, and thank you for joining us. We're going to begin with breaking news tonight out of Minneapolis, where the National Guard is being mobilized after violent protests erupted overnight over the death of George Floyd. As governor of the state of Michigan, I do hereby officially request the immediate deployment of federal troops into Michigan to assist state and local authorities in reestablishing law and order in the city of Detroit. I am joined in this request by Jerome T. Kavanaugh, mayor of the city of Detroit. Good morning. Every day that we wake up here in this city, we see more damage rather than less. And obviously that's not what city or state officials want. They want to try to calm things down, and that's why they instituted this curfew last night at 8 p.m., which the protesters defied. Fire Chief Charles Quinlan made a first estimate of $100 million damage. Ignited by firebombs or just matches and paper, flames and smoke swallowed the sky, holding back the dawn. Firemen left some areas burning when snipers opened up from rooftops and windows. We want to update you on the continuing news coming out of Minneapolis this evening. A growing group of protesters have gathered at the front of the Minneapolis 3rd Precinct. We'll give you a shot from Sky 4. You can see the front of this building is on fire. 
We also know in the same area that the Maxit Pawn Shop, which is a much bigger building, is on fire. An activist group live streaming the riots as they have taken over this building. We're not sure how taking over a building and the fire goes together, but you can see people are throwing wood, throwing things at the fire. This has been Collective Memory, a production of the PSU Pacific Sentinel. Special thanks to the Detroit Historical Society, BlackPast.org, the National Criminal Justice Reference Service, the Brookings Institution, Smithsonian Magazine, the National Museum of African American History and Culture, NPR, and CBS, Bloomberg, WDIV, and WXYZ-TV for archival news footage. You can find a full list of all the sources used to research this episode in the show notes. Thanks for listening. Thank you.